0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Overture, curtain, lights. The most anticipated and important set of public hearings in at least 50 years, and perhaps even in the history of the Republic, launches this week, with the January 6th committee offering an overview of an exhaustive investigation that has concluded that former President Donald Trump and his minions engaged in a two-month set of schemes to unlawfully deny the transfer of presidential power to Joe Biden. The committee's interviews of over 1,000 witnesses and mountains of documentary evidence present a sharp challenge to pare down into six to eight hearings, a narrative that is both comprehensive and riveting to an American public facing multiple distractions, possible January 6 fatigue, and a concerted strategy from congressional Republican leadership, which chose to boycott the committee and the investigation to undermine the committee's legitimacy. Meanwhile, even by the horrific world-leading standards of the United States, the sequence of grotesque mass shootings over the last two weeks has been so shocking and heartrending that it might actually provoke some modest federal legislative provisions and a change in the impoverished terms of the gun policy debate. The deeper staging of both these face offs is the midterm elections, in which Republicans are banking on the traditional advantage to the out of power party combined with low approval on the economy under President Biden, while Democrats threaten to narrow the gap by focusing voters on the dangers of the MAGA-Trump crowd, gun violence, and, not least, abortion, with the Supreme Court poised to gut or overrule Roe v. Wade in a matter of weeks. To analyze these high-stakes showdowns, we welcome three renowned experts on government, policy, and the ways of Washington. And they are... Julie Zebrak, a longtime D.C. attorney and political consultant. She's currently director of digital strategy and outreach for Washington Monthly. She served in the U.S. Department of Justice from 1997 to 2015, including as deputy chief of staff to the deputy attorney general, and then moved to the Department of Treasury, where she also occupied high-level positions. She's the founder and CEO of the political action group Yes Moms, which is focused on organizing mothers around the country in support of progressive candidates. Not least, she is a charter talking Fed. Julie (laughs) Zebrak, very nice to see you. Thanks for coming.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Josh Marshall, an American journalist and blogger. He founded and continues to run Talking Points Memo, a political blog, one of the first and still by my lights, the best political blog out there. His writing's been widely featured in leading national publications. He also hosts the popular and excellent Josh Marshall podcast, where he and noteworthy guests tackle the big political stories of the day. I'm really pleased to say he's joined us several times now. Thank you very much for returning, Josh Marshall. Thanks for having me. And Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Now in his fourth term in Congress, he sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee, and he is co-chair of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. He, Well, he's got a long record in state service as well. But notably, he's a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and he served in the reserves, retiring with the rank of colonel just last year in 2021. Congressman Lou, thank you for your service and thank you for your generosity and being a regular on this podcast. Thank you, Harry. Okay, so the curtain raises in a few days on the long awaited hearings of the January 6th committee. They've got kind of a daunting task. They've got six to eight hearings to serve up a comprehensive account of a series of episodes just culminating in the January 6th melee to stop the lawful transfer of power. Let's start here. Who is their primary target audience as you see it? And what are the metrics that you'll be looking to to measure success or failure of the hearings as a whole?
2: Well, my view is it's going to be the American people. And as a House impeachment manager for the second impeachment trial, I think it's funny I have to designate which impeachment trial it is because the former (laughs) president was just that bad. But we presented at that time what we knew, which is that January 6th wasn't just a one day event. There was a whole buildup to it by the former president and his advisors with the big lie. There was planning and then there were actions after January 6th. So the January 6th committee is going to show the American people much more in depth what happened both before, during and after January 6th. And I really look forward to what they have to show.
0: We're hearing about the thousand witnesses who interviewed behind the scenes just by happenstance a couple of days ago. A memo is discovered that takes this whole thing back to shortly after the election but they don't have that much time. Don't they have competing goals? I mean, it's one thing to be comprehensive as they aim to be. It's another thing to never be dull. Yeah.
1: Yeah. To Congressman Lou's point, obviously the American people are the target, but we also need to be keeping people's attention during a time of the year where people's attention is waning and frankly getting a little overwhelmed with everything going on. But in particular, This has got to continue to be a galvanizing issue for Democrats, for independents in the midterms, and making sure that they are actually tuning in, seeing clips, and of course, watching on TV what's going on, and having the committee make the case so that folks are not forgetting How close we have been becoming to losing our democracy and keeping that in mind when they're heading to the ballot box in the primaries. And then, of course, again in November.
0: What's your sense, anyone, of what it's going to sort of look like six to eight hearings? Who questions? What's the mix of documentary evidence and live testimony? Will the live witnesses all be friendly and prepped, or will they roll the dice on? say, an Ivanka Trump. How's it actually going to be choreographed? Do we have a sense of that yet? I have no
3: idea. It's an interesting question, though. I hope it is not just friendly witnesses. And I think I saw some story the last few days that they may lead off with Judge Ludding. And that's, that's, that's good. He was involved not as a conspirator, but as someone trying to kind of keep things on the rails. He's obviously a very conservative Republican. But at the end of the day, he's a friendly witness. He's another person who agrees how horrible it was and stuff. And, and we seem to have gotten away to some extent from, no, let's bring up some of the people who are going to be belligerent and not want to be there or at least want to do some kind of combat.
0: Yeah, I get that vibe as well, that they're proceeding on a first do no harm principle, that they're very aware of how this will be digested post-digested, ruminated in sound bites, and that the risk of a rough moment might be not worth running next to a series of fairly clean, but again, th- that means they're not going for the stars with dramatic witnesses either. Congressman, obviously we're not asking you to talk out of school, but you face some of these same questions during the impeachment as between little bite size, move the ball safely down the field, three-yard passes or whatever, and mixing it up with trying some things that might fall incomplete. What's your sense of where they're going?
2: I believe it will be a multimedia presentation. That's what we did during the impeachment trial as well. There is something about moving pictures with audio added to it that is compelling, and I do think they're going to show videos. I also think they don't have to capture all twenty-seven thousand facts they just have to tell a simple story of what led up to it why it happened and then actions afterwards and i think it's better to be simple because again the american people are busy right they have lots of things going on in their lives they may not watch every one of these hearings so they just have to be able to present a very digestible version of what happened on january 6th and why it can never happen again
0: Yeah. And I mean, look, they're going to have a report. We're going to have the doorstop that hopefully puts everything in, but they are biting off for themselves some effort to be comprehensive as well. So Josh, let me just follow up. And I know this is just what you would do if you were in that chair, but what kinds of dramatic moments do you envision or would you hope to see if you were the sort of director of proceedings?
3: you know, I think we know from the Watergate hearing, some of the most interesting things were from semi-friendly witnesses. Let's put it that way. People who were in the mix and knew what was happening, but were no longer on board, you know, the famous moment of like, was there any taping? Well, in fact, there was, you know, stuff like that.
0: Which apparently was actually a surprise, right? You, Sam Irvin's like, We don't see that happening. Yeah, I think it was one of those ones where some of the staff members
3: had gotten that, but at least the members of the committee, it was new to them. And I think it was sort of unclear whether he would go there. So yeah, there actually was some some legitimate drama there. I don't know what kind of dramatic stuff like that we're necessarily going to get. I would answer that by going back to one of your earlier questions. What's the goal? Who's the audience? And the congressman's right. The audience is the American people, but within the American people, I think we know that About a third of the population likes what happened. So nothing much to do there. They're the constituency of the insurrectionists, right? And you have at least that much on the other side who is totally convinced. It's not a kind of a standard like, oh, you got to go for the middle. It's more there is a clear majority of people in this country who know what happened there was wrong and who know what happened in the lead up to it was wrong. I think the key is the committee has to make some real progress in getting back to the perception of the event, the sense of the importance of the event that people had in the weeks just after January 6th, when people were like, holy crap, how could this have happened? And you need to get back to that. You need to take probably 20% of the population who knows what happened up there was wrong, was kind of like, okay, that happened. You know, a lot of things happened. It happened and it's done and, and filled a tank of gas and it's more than $5 a gallon. You need to get past that. You need to bring it right back to the center again. And that's just a matter of kind of getting everybody's attention. And one thing that I think it was like an Axios, one of these, you know, kind of insider publications yesterday or something where they had a scoop on, the comms op that Trump and basically all congressional Republicans are going to have to counter program, and I think what they will need to do is, notwithstanding this counter programming, to get out of that mode in which this is he said
0: she said politicized event. Yeah,
3: in a political campaign when no one is trying to violently overthrow the government, yeah, one side says this, one side says that. That's the sort of the nature of that interaction. But here, you need to kind of get out of that, because what we're talking about was an effort to violently overthrow the government, to violently overthrow the government and the U.S. Constitution. And that should not be a question of political combat within the political system. And what you have here is you have one party openly on the side of the insurrection. You're counter-programming the investigation. You don't want there to be an investigation. You want to say what happened was fine. So, I think the challenge they have is not only not to be counter-programmed, but to get people back to, wait a second, maybe you, you or you didn't have anything to do with it, but you're saying it was okay? Or you're saying you want to kneecap the investigation? Because it's very striking where this is right now, that. There were a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill that maybe should have done more, but were not specifically involved. They were not breaking down the doors. They weren't even challenging the votes, all that kind of stuff. But now they are, in effect, championing the insurrection. And so they need to get it out of that mode where it's a kind of like, you know, who's doing better? Like, well, within the political system, no one should be doing better or not. This was an attack on the political system itself. And if you think that's okay, you're outside of the legitimate political system.
0: I think that's a really excellent point. It's captured in the simple formulation of the congressman. I think, look, it's the American people, or you might try to say history, but as opposed to how are we polling with suburban soccer moms? It's, you know, we're bringing forward a full account that is a longer range project We've just got to put it out there. And in some ways it speaks for itself, but where do you hear some of these details. One thing that you put me in mind of, Josh, when you mentioned Watergate, I think like there, you know, we didn't have Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and of course not Nixon. We had a cast of characters, theretofore unknown. And I think there there are going to be people, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson comes to mind. She was the aide to Mark Meadows, who is being recalcitrant. But she'll be the spokesperson there. And, you know, of these thousand people, many of them will be unknown figures to us. And the country will react to them as you react to anybody on trial. If they look like they're telling the truth and outside of the whole political scrum, then presumably their facts come home. And it gives everyone an opportunity to really process, holy crap, to quote Josh Marshall
3: I'm less restrained on my own podcast. I don't know what the (laughs) rules of the road are here.
2: So I think there could be another audience, which would be the Department of Justice. And depending on how the committee wants to do this, if they could get a witness to basically say, well, of course, there are multiple crimes being committed and it goes very top.
0: In the jurisdiction of the United States, right?
2: They can portray such a compelling story that it makes it hard for the DOJ not to do anything to people at the top. I think that that would be something that the committee might be looking at because something that depresses people is if they see all this and they go, "Wow, this was so horrible and totally off the rails." And then nothing happens from this, I think that would actually not be great either,
0: Julie, what are your thoughts about that? And in particular, You know, you paint a different picture if you're actually trying to check all the boxes of elements of a crime than you would if you're just trying to show the essential assault on the democratic system itself. How big an audience is the DOJ?
1: Look, I don't have any insights into what's going on at DOJ right now, but I guess my fervent hope is that the committee is teeing this up for the department in a way that will make the next steps Much more smooth and easy for Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco, and and all those folks to get to the point where they're at a comfortable place with whatever teams are working on this to reflect on Trump's state of mind, the other players' states of mind, and rip the Band-Aid off of whatever they're working on. I can say for sure that's going to happen, but it's my hope that this teeing it up will sort of segue into that. I do think to the Congressman's point that we continue as whatever year we're in, year six after or five and a half after Trump's election and then the two impeachment trials and now January 6th, that we're seeing this state of nothing happens, nothing happens. And I think the fatigue from that is going to be playing into how people are viewing, with skepticism, the hearings themselves.
0: January six fatigue or fatigue over DOJ in action?
1: Fatigue over DOJ in action and this idea that Trump and and his folks are Teflon, that nothing happens to hold them accountable. And so clearly I'm in the midterm mode right now and, and thinking about how all of this impacts Democrats going Into November, but I do think that when you're constantly screaming from the rooftops that things are in crisis and things are horrible, and then nothing is coming from it, whether it's gun control, whether it's voting rights, whether it's women's reproductive rights, or here, you know, holding a man and his entourage accountable. Is slipping through our fingers yet again. I mean, I think that does impact how voters show up, how voters are motivated, how voters are willing to view our government. And that's damaging in and of itself. And so I'm curious to hear what you all think, but I think that it really will be an inflection point if we come to the conclusion of these hearings and we go into November and we still haven't seen anything come out of it from DOJ.
3: I certainly agree that, you know, I think just in general in our society, we don't pay enough attention to signaling, basically elite signaling, you get into like what, the stuff that political scientists say, and how it affects people's perceptions of these things. So I agree on that. And I think just decisively how this whole thing has played out over the last year and a half or so, is that within three or four days, all basically the entire Republican Party got together and said, okay, this was fine. This was fine. And and for most people who are not deeply involved in politics, you see that signaling and you say, okay, well, one party says it's fine, another party says it's not fine. Okay, it's sort of up in the air and whatever. By definition, it can't be that clear if one of our two parties says it's fine. I would say this, though. I actually hope the committee does not go too far on trying to demonstrate the technical elements of a crime. Because first of all, the people at the DOJ are not idiots. <laughs> they, can, they can figure this out themselves if they want to.
0: More than that, they will. And you know.
3: Yeah, they, they know how to kind of figure out what are the elements of the crime. And these technical matters are not how most people, and not just like the average Joe, just most people. I think you guys are probably all lawyers. I'm not, right? You guys think in this very specific way. And that's great, but not everybody thinks that way. So I think if you go too far, especially because, again, as I said, the people at the DOJ can figure this out themselves. And they're not going to kind of like, oh, wow, the committee really put us on the spot. I'm going to die everybody. I mean, that's not that's not how it's going to happen. Right. And I would be concerned that you end up with the legal commentator saying, wow, really nailed the elements of the crime there. I guess our work here is done. And you ignore the stuff that is actually what can resonate With the general public. And back to another point earlier, I agree, you don't need to be comprehensive. That's what the report is for. The real goal here is to come out of this that more people are back in the mode where they were in the couple weeks after this happened to say, wow, that was completely outside the realm of acceptable. And we can't ever have this happen again. And if you were part of this, you need to be, if not indicted, at least outside of legitimate politics going forward. And you do that in a way that is just different from the technical elements of the crime.
2: I want to go back to something Julie said about the American public watching all this bad stuff happening and then the foreign justice not taking any action. So I want to bring up the Mueller report. If you look at the Mueller report's analysis of obstruction of justice, it is very clear the former president committed obstruction of justice. There's just really a huge amount of evidence on every single element. I can understand why you may not want to indict a sitting president, but once he was no longer a sitting president, just based on the facts, there was no excuse for the Department of Justice not to indict him on obstruction of justice. And if there was some political problem with indicting former presidents, then the current president could always do a pardon, right? But just based on the facts, I thought the Department of Justice had a major fail when they did not indict the former president on multiple obstruction of justice counts.
3: I think how the Mueller report came out is also a good example of what we were talking about before, that as much as everybody kind of saw what Bill Barr was doing, he was quite effective in his ability as the person in authority, the, the attorney general under whom the entire process was done, even if it's special counsel and you know, blah, 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 of saying, yep, looked at it, all good. Our, our work is done here.
1: With Rod Rosenstein standing there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And that just, that had a big impact. I mean, yes, the people who read the port got that. So those things have a big, those things have a big impact.
0: Yeah. Now, looking forward, I think whether or not they're going for the technical checkoff list, and I totally agree with Josh, the department won't be influenced by that sort of thing at all, or they're just painting the general evil picture There's going to be a lot of focus on Trump's intent, but I think a lot of ways to nevertheless try to prove it. One further analogy that put in mind by Watergate, Julie, you mentioned, if nothing happens, if it's a whole clean sweep, there's a real possibility. Remember Watergate and all the president's men, he resigns in 74, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, John Mitchell, they all go to jail later. So what will be the overall reaction if... Mark Meadows or other people, but not Trump. My sense, at least, is the committee's focus, and this is from the things that Liz Cheney has said, they really are looking to make the former president the central figure, the antagonist in a whole series of plots beginning not long after the election. And that's the judgment they're looking to serve up to the American people. Okay, so six or eight hearings, how many will be prime time, how effective the counterpunching of the Republicans will be. All of that, I think, stands to be seen. I just want to underscore what all three of you have said, which is this plays out in the political system in some sense, but it's just the stakes are bigger. There are stakes for the democracy and history that need to somehow be elevated uh, above the scrum and the midterms and the like.
1: Harry, one of the things that you mentioned having this in prime time.
0: Having one or two at least. Yeah.
1: Right, right, right. Having it on our TV sets. One of the big concerns I have, and I mean, you may as well, but I've got college age kids. I can tell you they have never in their lives sat down in front of a TV set and watched the news.
0: So 1950s, right?
1: (laughs) There was an article I saw about President Biden and being focused on the front page and news cycles and this kind of thing. That's not how everyone gets their news. I mean, I will tell you, I don't watch TV news anymore. I, I read it. My kids, they're getting their news through reliable sources. They know how to read news, but they're not getting it sitting in front of a television set. And so there's a certain demographic that may not be getting this information unless the committee and the media are coming up with ways to push it out through TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, you know, like we have to think more globally now. And I just hope that folks are looking at pushing these hearings out in a way that will reach not just the 50 and over crowd who still sits in front of their television sets at 7pm or 9pm after dinner,
0: I think another reason to second Josh's point that they don't have to be comprehensive for what it's worth, I think this is a really impressive staff that's got in mind everything from proof to the points of how it's going to be digested. Congressman, you're closer to it, and you have the means of comparing with your own impeachment staff, which was excellent. But this is maybe the most impressive congressional investigation in anyone's memory, yeah.
2: I agree, and I think. The Republican leader made a major strategic mistake uh, when he pulled members of the Republican Party from this committee because it really deprived him of a lot of what was happening with this committee. It's still bipartisan. You have Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on it, but this is going to be a very powerful bipartisan committee. And really, Kevin McCarthy doesn't have a lot of intelligence as to what is happening with this committee. Had he uh, kept his members' on.
3: You could have stopped that sentence before you went on there. Yeah. (laughs) You
0: mean mean (laughs) visibility.
3: (laughs) I think to the congressman's (laughs) point, as we have seen through lots of investigations over the last like three years, if you want to counter program, you do it from the dais. That's where you counter program. And unfortunately, that is really effective because you've got the anti insurrection people on the committee saying, well, how about this? How about that? And then you get, you know, Jim Jordan setting aside all that kerfuffle. We got Jim Jordan up there saying, well, wasn't there a lot of, you know, just BS and stuff. So I think the congressman is right. That was a big mistake.
0: The not having that every second five minutes be the complete change of of pace. They're on the outside looking in.
3: And it's also that, yes, it is bipartisan, but the committee is stacked with anti-insurrection people. There's no pro-insurrection people on the committee. And that puts the pro-insurrection group at a kind of a disadvantage, i.e. the Republican party.
0: Right. Or 98 percent of it. It's time for our sidebar feature in which we explain a topic that's been fundamental in the news, but hasn't necessarily been spelled out. And today that is prosecuting Putin. A lot of talk about having the Russian autocrat potentially stand trial on war crimes, but how might that even work? To explain it to us, we are really pleased to welcome Tony Goldwyn, an actor, producer, singer, and activist best known for his role as President of the United States in the hit TV drama Scandal, for which he also directed several episodes and won a Peabody Award. You may also recognize him from the Divergent Cable series, the award-winning film King Richard, The Last Samurai, Ghost, and many others. He's also graced the stage many times, including playing Captain Von Trapp in a concert performance of The Sound of Music at Carnegie Hall. So I give you Tony Goldwyn on Prosecuting Putin.
4: Can Putin be charged with war crimes? During the first few weeks of the War of Russian Aggression, the Russian military and Russian President Vladimir Putin appear to have committed flagrant violations of international law. Most evidently, Russia's targeting of Ukrainian civilians could amount to both war crimes and crimes against humanity. But whether Putin can be prosecuted is less clear. In practice, bringing the Russian leader to face criminal charges in the International Criminal Court, or ICC, will be difficult. First, the ICC needs jurisdiction over Putin, that is, the legal authority to try him for alleged crimes. Although neither Russia nor Ukraine are full ICC members, the ICC does already have jurisdiction over Putin. Putin has an individual responsibility as a head of state to comply with international law, and Ukraine's 2015 referral of the Crimean conflict to the ICC automatically granted the court jurisdiction over him. Second, the prosecution would need to develop evidence against Putin. On its face, Russia's actions in Ukraine could demonstrate Putin's guilt, especially considering his overall iron-fist control of Russia and evidently the invasion itself. But given the difficulty of proving intent, it would take a lot of investigation, and in particular the development of cooperating witnesses, to develop evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the Russian military willfully targeted civilians or committed other violations of international law at Putin's command. The biggest issue, though, is getting physical control of Putin. The ICC can only prosecute an individual if he or she is present at The Hague. Unsurprisingly, those at risk of prosecution avoid traveling to the Netherlands. That's the path Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has taken for some ten years to avoid prosecution for alleged war crimes, including torture. Of course, it is possible that a new Russian regime could hand Putin over to the ICC. This happened with the extradition of Serbian President Milosevic in 1999 following the Yugoslav Wars. And currently, the Sudanese government is considering extraditing former President Omar al-Bashir for his role in the Darfur genocide. There is one other path to prosecuting Putin. States signatories to the Geneva Conventions can exercise universal jurisdiction over certain violations of international law, including genocide and war crimes committed in other countries. So, theoretically, a member state like Germany or France could prosecute Putin for such crimes in Ukraine. But the problem of physical control remains. A foreign leader can only be successfully prosecuted if he is physically within the charging country. It's doubtful that Putin will be leaving Russia anytime soon, given the risk. Indeed, he will likely spend the rest of his life in Russia, or in the event of Russian regime change, in The Hague. So, there are legal avenues for prosecuting Putin. But as long as he remains in power, the chances of his facing individual charges for crimes committed in Ukraine are negligible. For Talking Feds, I'm Tony Goldwyn.
0: Thank you very much to Tony Goldwyn. Tony will soon start production on Christopher Nolan's much-anticipated feature, Oppenheimer. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
5: Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we crack open the topic of aging wine in traditional oak barrels versus stainless steel tanks. There are many types of oak from various countries, but in general, oak is the most pliable wood. Great for forming a barrel and even better for storing liquids. Oak barrels have a limited life cycle, though, whereas stainless steel can be used over and over. Point for stainless. There's also new oak, which has a tendency to give wine the complexities that make it interesting, adding spice aromas such as coconut and vanilla or even hints of allspice and cinnamon. On the other hand, old oak doesn't pick up much flavor, but it does give the wine a softer texture. Stainless steel, on the other hand, is exactly what you'd expect. Clean and contemporary, adding little to the wine, in a good way that is. Wines aged in stainless tanks are crisp and focused, allowing the fresh fruit flavor to shine for the truest expression of the grape. So, who wins in oak versus stainless? Why not pick up one of each at your local Total Wine and you decide. Thanks to our friends
0: at Total Wine and more for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, so let's go to... The other big story of the week, we are hopefully at the end of a truly sickening fortnight of carnage from a series of mass shootings that plague this country like no other country in the world. We know the political and cultural elements that in the past have permitted each episode to sort of fade away. So let me start with this question. Has this series of shootings been so nightmarish that they actually will give rise to some reforms. Representative, well, you're in the middle of a markup of a package of proposals that should pass the House. Are we really in a moment of baby step or more than baby step progress?
2: The House has previously passed universal background checks uh, to the Senate. We're going to pass a red flag bill to the Senate next week. We're also going to pass what the House Judiciary Committee recently just did, which is we marked up a bill that's going to raise age limit to 21 to purchase assault weapons. We're banning high capacity magazines. We put in some self-storage requirements. We put in a new federal offense for straw purchasers and gun traffickers, as well as some other provisions. That's also going to be a pass over to the Senate. And then it's going to be up to the bipartisan working group in the Senate. Uh, to see what they can do uh, to pass something back to the House that we can send to the president.
0: So eight different proposals just in the Judiciary Committee bill. No assault weapons outright ban, which is Biden's first element when he came out with his agenda. Was that a strategic decision? Why uh, shy away from that one?
2: I support an assault weapons ban. We've had it. Uh, in the federal government before uh, when Senator Feinstein got her bill signed into law. It's a matter of counting votes. We have a Democrat caucus with a very slim margin. And if we have the votes, then I'm sure that uh, we'll have that bill on the floor.
0: Okay. But it's not part of the eight. So let's talk about the ones that are going over the Senate, the eight, the red flag bill, et cetera. And I know Julie and Josh, you've both been really involved in the issue. So Which provisions in your view are the most important and separately, which ones are most likely to become law?
1: I would say the universal background checks, the raising the age for assault weapons and the storage laws seem like they should be doable. I'm holding my breath like everybody else um, to see what that looks like. But I do think, and I'm seeing it sort of play out, that the assault weapon ban is even an issue in the midterms. Not everybody's coming out against it. And so I think that one is likely to not make it through. But I think that there is an appetite, and perhaps with this bipartisan effort, to get a couple things done. And I'm holding my breath. I wish I could be more optimistic. I would say, though, that even Harry in the last 24 hours. We've had a few more mass shootings.
0: We're pushing 300 for 2022. It's it's stunning. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the drumbeat is there. The Moms Demand Action (laughs) Uh, women are galvanized and women and men are galvanized. We obviously have a majority of the country who is in favor of some of these changes. And so it's going to come down to the votes. And I, I just, you know, I'm holding my breath.
0: Josh, you had a really interesting piece about why one thing that looks like small beer is actually a pretty big deal, the increase in age to 21 to purchase a semi-automatic rifle. Can you lay out your um, analysis there?
3: Yeah. I mean, and you know, I would say to your other question, in general, short and medium term, I'm not very optimistic at all. However- For
0: anything, basically.
3: Yeah. When I first heard the idea, and, and it's sort of perverse, you cannot buy a handgun. Until you're 21. You know, you can get one when you're 18, but you can buy an AR-15. And I assume, although I don't know that that is a relic of the earlier era when we thought about kind of bad news delinquents getting guns, you think of a handgun, not like a shotgun or or a rifle, kind of pre-AR-15 thinking. In any case, when I first heard this idea of making it 21, I thought, well, wow, you know, this is another kind of totally marginal. Thing that it wouldn't even amount to anything in the extremely unlikely circumstance in which it actually got passed. But when I read up on it and why people are pushing it, it's actually, I would say, of all the things that are currently on offer, it is the most significant one. Both the Buffalo and Uvalde shooters were 18 years old. I believe the guy in Uvalde went out and bought the gun like on his birthday, basically. And look, I think we all know. From a personal experience, either our own experience or our life experience, men, when they're in their late teenage and early 20s, are kind of weird. They're not right, right? I mean, we know this from how driver's insurance goes. Right. You pay a big premium until you're 25. Because actuarially, you start to get sort of normal when you're 25. Right, your brain
1: development yeah, it hasn't and, and, fully baked.
3: Exactly, exactly. And if you go back and look through all these cases, a huge percentage of the mass shooters are between like, you know, 18 and 22 or something like that. And if you move that age, a chunk of those Would not be at least not be able to go just walk in and buy an AR 15. Now, obviously, there's other ways you can get one, but you know, you go around your friends, hey, can someone lend me their AR 15? If the person's a little off, that's going to throw up some questions. So I actually think that one is significant. I would say more broadly, though, I think where we are is the most significant thing would be to pass something because where the whole political framework is right now is we are in this pattern of ever escalating gun massacres, often child gun massacres, in which everybody is upset for a few days, and then literally nothing happens. And that structures the whole framework. If you had something happen, then I think the takeaway would be, okay, at least we're admitting that there's a problem here. It's like the chronic alcoholic that nothing will ever change before the person admits there's a problem, right. right? And then maybe you have a fighting chance. And I think that anything would be a big deal because it will be a recognition of two things. Okay, this is a problem. This is not how it should be. And that the political process can take steps to at least ameliorate the problem. And once you do that, then you can say, well, okay, maybe that didn't work as much. What's the other thing? And so that that's my read of the politics of the situation.
1: I think that's true. Maryland's ghost gun law just went into effect. And then New York, I think, just had a red flag law pass. I'm not sure exactly on the effective date of it. But even seeing those bits of progress, I think, is really helpful for folks who are feeling discouraged and recognizing, yes, those are blue states. Yes, it's not at the federal level. One of the things is sort of seeing is believing. And if you're seeing in real time these types of laws that are making progress, I think that even those little drops of hope are going to be effective in allowing at the federal level for a path forward to come to light. I just think that the more we can be doing on the state level and having some of these successes is going to really allow for us and allow for folks who are hunters who use their guns responsibly for these common sense gun users who want to see the common sense reforms happening. How is your life changing? Are you really blocked from pursuing your interests. No, you're not with these laws and having some of that success and getting some buy-in, I think, from folks who are gun users to see that some of this isn't going to ruin their hobby. Or
0: just to be able to engage with them. I mean, the counterpoint, it's true.
1: There's actually
0: over the course of time been a lot of important legislation in certain states, but it's such a national problem we have twice the guns per capita of any country, more than citizens, and they travel so freely across state lines.
3: I think it's like way more than twice. Yeah.
0: But Josh, you had another point. Just to date, there's been a you know terrible intellectual dishonesty about the whole debate, Republicans coming forward with obviously make-weight arguments. And you cited someone who said, honestly, look, it's a tragedy, don't get me wrong, but this is the price we're willing to pay for gun rights. It was an
3: editorial in the National Review, unsigned editorial.
0: Yeah, right? Yeah. So maybe there is some prospect for this being sufficiently horrific to actually shake up the terms of discussion so it's not these complete disingenuous talking points. Still, that's all pretty small beer. So I
2: agree with Josh that raising the age of 21 to purchase a semi-automatic rifle would be important in trying to mitigate mass shootings. I do want to point out that I think the red flag bill also is pretty significant because the leading cause of gun deaths is actually suicide. And the red flag law would help mitigate that as well.
0: And that is going forward, right? And we actually did an interesting piece with an author yesterday who has says that assault killings are more like two or three percent, but so searing. But it may not be these hopeless, out of nowhere episodes, but things you can actually be aware of. And you're quite right. Something like half of the forty five thousand plus homicides every year are suicides,
3: and also a high number that are like spousal killings and stuff like that. Yeah, Red flag, violence. also, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah,
0: right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, I hearken back to the Daniel Moynihan quote: "Guns don't kill people." Bullets kill people. The Evaldi shooter brought 375 rounds of ammo to celebrate his birthday. Is there any kind of discussion or attention being paid to limiting ammunition and how many rounds individuals can can buy? And might that have any purchase in the debate?
2: So we do ban high capacity magazines, which in the bill is essentially anything uh, over 10 bullets uh, in the cartridge because the shooter that have to reload, and potentially if there's a time break there, maybe something could be done to stop the shooter. The bill currently doesn't limit uh, the amount of ammunition someone could purchase.
0: I see, and that that would look like a real sticking point for Second Amendment enthusiasts, whatever's the polite way to put it. Okay, this is actually a good transition to the last point I wanted to cover, at least briefly, which is the midterms and the broader political dynamic discussions have seemed to be in the same hole of Republicans looking good, Democrats not so much because Democrats, the party in power, and they're not polling very well on the economy, even though there's reason to think that their numbers in the economy are much better than they're being given credit for. Do you think that anything about the intensity of issues that have come to the fore in the last couple of months, namely guns and abortion, actually is sufficiently prominent to be a game changer in the midterm prognosis?
2: Let me first say that I don't think it's accurate to say that Democrats aren't polling well. If you look at a recent NPR poll that came out a few weeks ago, it showed the president is not polling well, but the very same poll had... Democrats up by five in the generic congressional ballot. The generic congressional ballot does fluctuate back and forth, but you see people separating their views of the White House from their view of the member of Congress.
3: A poll came out of Michigan, and this was of the gubernatorial race, but I think it goes to the same disconnect, which is a good disconnect in this context for Democrats, that Joe Biden was at 36 percent support in Michigan. Know his approval in Michigan and 55% disapproval, so like disaster, right? Terrible, terrible numbers. Gretchen Whitmer was at 49% support approval and 41% disapproval. It's like she's operating in a different planet from Joe Biden, and normally that is just not how it works. And what the congressman describes is also not how it normally works, and I think. We may find when we get the election results, okay, it was pretty much like normal. But I think it is part of how upended the whole society and the whole political system is at the moment that it's not clear that Democrats are going to rise or fall with Joe Biden on this. And again, for Democrats, that's a good possibility because he's doing terribly, right?
0: Now, it's a great point. And nationally, you have these figures who are so corrosive like the Jordans and McCarthy's, but they go back to their own district. But here in state races like Michigan, maybe Wisconsin is like this, Julie. You actually have real matchups between the worst kind of MAGA type candidates and then, you know, moderate Dems. And in those situations, the big time Trump candidates might be more exposed.
1: Yeah, certainly. As Harry knows, I've been more involved in Wisconsin. Right now, Ron Johnson's. He's still polling at 36 percent. He's Mr. January 6th was a peaceful protest. His latest thing is that the shootings are a result of critical race theory and wokeness. I mean, I could go on and on.
0: If he were in a congressional district where everyone agreed, it'd be a different dynamic is what I'm saying. Totally. I do want to make sure to ask this one question, though. Uh, So abortion and the leak guns and, and the tragedies of the last two weeks, maybe even one six and the drip of revelations, any of that, whatever the basic dynamic is. And Congressman, you very rightly correct me and thank you to distinguish between Biden and the party. But are these issues, any of them going to bounce out of what would normally be maybe secondary status and actually be game changers that'll knock uh, Republicans off balance?
1: I can say that democratic women are energized. They're galvanized. They are angry as hell. And the apathy resignment that maybe folks were feeling about inflation, the economy. And I think that this has been sort of a double gut punch to folks who are feeling like maybe I was sort of sitting this out and now I just can't afford to sit out, getting involved, donate to candidates, and looking differently at candidates who are willing to eliminate the filibuster, who are willing to codify Roe, who have been talking about women's right to choose being eviscerated, and who have the background behind it to show that they're going to be on board. I think that there is this energy that female candidates and that women are looking towards them to save us because we've had 50 years of Something like Roe not being codified or gun control spiraling out of control these last few years and feeling like we need somebody who's going to prioritize these issues.
2: I agree with Julie. And I just want to know that Republican single issue voters are fairly reliable and consistent, whether it's on abortion or on guns. It's not clear to me how much additional marginal voters Republicans are going to be able to get on those two issues. But for Democrats, we have a lot of folks that. Or infrequent voters. And if the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade, which I think they will, I think that's going to get a lot of infrequent voters to show up at the polls in November because they know that abortion is on the ballot. And with the gun issue, I think you could get some infrequent voters to show up in November as well. So I think these two issues will end up helping Democrats more than Republicans.
3: I would say of those three Unfortunately, I don't think the gun issue is really going to be meaningful for Democrats. I think January 6th, who knows? We'll see with these hearings. But I think abortion and what seems to be almost certainly the imminent rejection of Roe is the thing that can actually change the entire outcome of the midterm election. The one thing I would say, though, is that Democrats As a party, as candidates, there are very specific things that they need to do to activate that as an issue. Now, I'm not saying no one's paying attention now, but I'm saying to take it from where it is now to something that can actually make a very significant difference in who controls Congress in January 2023.
0: All right, there's an end for now. We're about out of time, just a minute or two for our final talking five, where we take a question from a listener and we each have to answer in five words or fewer. Okay, so this week Michael Sussman is acquitted, and that leaves John Durham, special counsel, very little to show for his three years of digging. The question is Is John Durham's special counsel tenure effectively finished? Five words or fewer. Yeah, that's it. Uh, that's yeah. my okay. uh,
3: yeah. That's my five words. Let us pray. John Durham lives in
0: Fantasyland. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we do Fantasyland as one that's word, what, that's, that, that, that right, works. Okay. Um, I'll say yes, but beware, tendentious report. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Julie, Josh, and Congressman Lou. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post full episodes, talking book conversations, and bonus video content. We're available as well on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we've posted a breakdown of the Sussman acquittal with Katie Benner, DOJ reporter for the New York Times, and a conversation with administrative law professor Jonathan Weinberg about a very important and nigh unto astonishing Fifth Circuit decision, the case of Jarksy versus SEC. So there's a wealth of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we've got and decide if you might like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henrikson, Sound Engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers, and Adam Messias is our consulting producer. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to Tony Goldwyn for explaining if Putin can be charged with, and more importantly, forced to stand trial on his alleged war crimes. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Doledo LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.